going to invite you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 11 this morning. That's where we're at. It might feel a little bit like deja vu for you. It might be a little bit confusing because we're coming to yet a third big ceremony where Saul is proclaimed king. In 1 Samuel chapter 9, Saul ate at a holy place with Samuel. That was kind of a pre-coronation banquet. And then in 1 Samuel 10, last week, Samuel anointed Saul privately. And then by the end of that chapter, there was this public ceremony where everyone was gathered and they shouted, Long live the king! It was official. But today we're going to end the chapter yet again with what appears to be some other ceremony where Saul is crowned as king. So... You have that to look forward to. invite you to stand with me one last time now that you're finally comfortable. And we're going to be reading uh, chapter 11 together. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition, I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messenger, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah were 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and You may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning, watch, and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring that men, so that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Let's pray. Father, as we've been going through the book of Samuel, I've been constantly amazed at... Well, the grace that is greater than all our sin. That even though things are going in a way that you never wanted them to go, that doesn't mean you didn't foresee it or make plans for it already, but 
it still wasn't the way that you wanted your people to go. Yet here you are giving them victory. Father, it helps us to know that wherever we find ourselves, no matter how deep and dark it may seem, no matter how disobedient and rejecting of you that we have become, that you still offer grace and kindness. Father, help us to take heed to your word this morning and to know that your grace and kindness is meant to do something to us, to bring us to repentance. Holy Spirit, we invite you to be the one speaking, and we ask and we pray and we beg that you would open up our hearts and our minds to respond accordingly to your word. Holy Spirit, we need power to do that as well. And we ask for it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I get the name of this sermon from a New Testament passage, namely Romans 2. Paul gets in a great zinger. You like zingers, right? You don't see it coming. He's, he's writing, uh, he's writing and I think he's picturing a bunch of self-righteous religious people. And he's stating stuff that is true. But for some reason it sounds like music to people's ears. He's, he's talking about all the godless nature of the world. He says, God's wrath is, is revealed to all people who suppress the truth in their own unrighteousness. And let me just tell you that that problem probably happens to me more often than it should. <laughs> I've said this before that if you want to know what I'm going through, just listen closely to my sermons to see what I'm struggling with. People who suppress the truth in their own unrighteousness, I believe it happens to believers. It happens on Sunday mornings when we say, wow, good message, Pastor, and I sure wish Mr. Joe was here across the room listening. <laughs> it happens... When the pastor has someone in mind all week long in particular only to find that they don't show up on Sunday morning. Because my own unrighteousness is suppressing the truth that I need to hear. You hear that? I wonder if you feel that. Paul masterfully opens up with this statement and he continues, the, the godless world suppress the truth in their own unrighteousness and then they exchange one true God for fake gods. They exchange worshiping creator to worshiping creation. They exchange pure, wholesome pleasures for perverted pleasures. They not only do evil, but they cheer on evildoers. And by this point, we're sitting in the pews and, yes, preach it. Preach to those evil people. Preach to those whoremongers and preach it to those corrupt politicians. But then comes that zinger in chapter 2. Paul says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. (laughs) Come on, Paul. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Ouch. (laughs) Well, I don't do the same things exactly. Maybe in a small way, I might. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls. Rightly falls? On me, on those who practice such things, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Well, I thought I might. I'm saved, right? Then here's where we get the title of the sermon. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, 
not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. See, God has sent Jesus to save us. And God is kind to us every day. And we're sitting in the pews. We're not burning up from God's lightning strikes. He's patient with my hypocrisy. He's patient with our judgments on others. And there's a reason for His kindness. There's a reason for His patience. It's born from His love. And it's meant to inspire something. Repentance. Well, what does this have to do with Samuel and Saul and the Israelites? Well, glad you asked. I guess I'll let you mull on that as we start. We're in chapter 11 of 1 Samuel. But in actually in chapter 12 of 1 Samuel, we will hear Samuel tell the people that this threat from this Nahash the Ammonite, the guy mentioned in our text today, is, is one of the things that provoked Israel's elders in the first place to even desire a king. You and I have likely been here before in some ways. I know that even in my lifetime I've sat in, I've sat under uh, administrations of the presidency where I see a foreign power or a foreign leader acting up and I just don't trust the president that I have at the time to either be aggressive enough or maybe he's not wise enough and how to go about preventing potential threats. And whenever we've studied 1 Samuel 8, 8, you know, 400 years ago, back before Easter, some things we thought about were this. Maybe Israel's elders were tired of what felt like the ambiguity of it all. Maybe they they felt like to have God right there in the central mix with oppressive, warring powers all around, they never knew if they'd be delivered. They've had this vicious cycle of oppression and deliverance with judges for for centuries. They had had this horrible experience where they lost the Ark of the Covenant to the Philistines, and it seemed that all hope was lost until God, single-handedly through supernatural means, brought the Ark back to His people. Nevertheless, 20 years later, with Samuel getting older and his Sons being corrupt. Perhaps Israel feared that Samuel's sons, who weren't as righteous as Samuel, said something's got to change. We we have enemies at the gates, and we have Samuel's sorry sons, and we're tired of always having to pray and wonder and worry with no visible sign, no visible symbol of strong leadership to be feared among the nations. And so we want a king like the nations. I mean, think about this if this was the USA. If there was no president, think about if all we had in the USA for political leadership was maybe a pastor who gives spiritual guidance. But when it came to a figurehead among the nations, well, we seem leaderless because we we claim to follow Yahweh as our king. That was Israel. So it's no wonder if other nations who do have kings and what have you Oh, well, if they suppose that God, Yahweh, is their king, but their leadership is ambiguous at best, no strong central leadership, maybe the priests are fighting amongst themselves and taking advantage of the people, well, we can easily take them. And Israel says, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And again, Nahash the Ammonite, so says Samuel in his farewell address in the next chapter, is a big reason, a big trigger for the desires for a king like all the nations. 
And in fact, at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 10, where we were last week, there is some more text that other manuscripts actually have. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, a manuscript of 1 Samuel 10 had at the end of 1 Samuel 10, the NRSV includes it, says, Now Nahash, king of the Ammonites, had been grievously oppressing the Gadites and the Reubenites, two other tribes of Israel. He would gouge out the right eye of each of them and would not grant Israel a deliverer, the idea of a judge throughout the book of the Judges. No one was left of the Israelites across the Jordan whose right eye, Nahash, king of the Ammonites, had not gouged out. But there were 7,000 men who had escaped from the Ammonites and had entered Jabesh-Gilead. So this, this Nahash has some background. He's coming after Israel here. And he intends to do it with the next tribe as well as the people who had escaped. No, I'm going to get your right eye. He has a weird fixation, doesn't he? Verse 1, Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. So Jabesh-Gilead is in the territory east of Manasseh. Some say it is a territory called East Manasseh. Some say it's still in Gad. It's a principal city. It's about 20 miles south of the Sea of Galilee, again, just a little bit east of the Jordan River. Nahash seems to be continuing his campaign. And the people of Jabesh don't even put up a fight. They see this guy is winning and winning and rather gruesomely, and maybe they like their right eyes. And so they just say, let's make a treaty. We'll serve you. No need to do your usual Right, eye gouging. This king is either narcissistic or sadistic, and he says, But Nahash, the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. few things here. While it's rather gruesome that this king is going through and, and gouging out right eyes, there is a method to his madness. The little, the literal words here is on this condition, I will cut a treaty with you. Because treaties back then usually involved cutting animals for sacrifice. Nahash thinks he's being funny and says, I'll cut this sort of treaty with you. With your eyes. The right eye is considered a symbol of more power. Right hand, you know, sitting at the right hand of God, the right being the more dominant side, so symbolically, Nahash is trying to show he's taking power from the people. Furthermore, Josephus, a Jewish historian, would tell us that the right eye is what soldiers would use in battle primarily because their left eye was being covered by their shield. And so if you take out the right eye, you're hindering a lot of military people because they suddenly won't have any way to see where they're striking their sword. Nahash is basically trying to make it impossible for any army he faces and conquers to ever rise up again in the future. Also, we see Nahash's plans here. He's already warred against two tribes of Israel. He's here at Jabesh, starting in this tribe, but he intends to bring disgrace on all Israel. Have no doubt, he doesn't intend to stop here once he's done. This is why he's probably okay with that weird request. Did you catch that while we read that? He says he'll make no treaty. He wants to cut their right eyes out, but then here's how the elders of Jabesh Gilead respond. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, and the word here for save is often you also used in the book of Judges, 
talking about what they do to deliver Israel from their enemies. But we continue, if there's no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. So says the citizens of Jabesh Gilead to King Nahash. Right? What king is okay with that? Hey, well, we know you're at our gates and we're defeated, but before you do that, can you give us a week to put an army together so we can at least put up a fight? (laughs) The next verse tells us that Israel's doing just that, so the king is apparently okay with it. Why? Part of it could be pride. Sure, give me your best shot. But as I said, it's obvious that he intends to war against all Israel, and so maybe he's trusting so much in his own army that he's thinking, Yeah, pull all of Israel together and I'll wipe them out quicker than I intended. Just bring them all here. We'll have one big war instead of me having to go from city to city. But it doesn't go down like that. Israel has a king who intends to bring war to him. Let's read it, verses 4 through 9. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now, behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messenger, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, And they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. So messengers start going throughout all of, of Israel. I'm assuming the same day, multiple messengers, because all they have is seven days. This is before phones and cars. Not a lot time to go throughout all Israel. So probably many messengers going every direction, and one happens to come Saul's direction. That's not happens. It's probably intentional, I might assume, because all Israel knows by this time that he's been crowned, probably. So Saul here is weeping. So people knew how to mourn in this day. <laughs> there was no society that saw, hey, how are you, with a lie in response, good, <laughs> whenever they're battling cancer or maybe he has marital problems, but we like things to always be good. The Israelites will put on sackcloth and ashes if the occasion calls for it. No reason to be private about grief. So the mourners told Saul, Nahash continues, basically. He's come to Jabesh. He's demanding their right eyes. It's happening. Israel's surely going to be conquered again. The demand for the king of Israel was one who would fight their battles for them. That was one of the demands. I wonder if you remember last week, last chapter, what happened at the end of Saul's ceremony. Chapter 10, verse 27 says, Some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. (laughs) And so in many ways, this is Saul's test. (laughs) This is his test to uh, how can this man save us? Ready or not, here is his test. The neighboring ruthless brute is invading. Two tribes are already gone. He's shown up basically, I would guess, almost to the de facto capital, if you will, of the third tribe. 
He's already there. He's ready to gouge out more eyes and he's calling Israel to the floor. Gather up all your men so you can fight me. The Lord empowers Saul to fight this test. As he hears these words, even before Saul has a chance even to react, he's still out in the field. Verse 6 tells us, And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. Now this book here in 1 Samuel is starting to sound a lot like the book of Judges. (laughs) We already talked about the word deliverer in the first part, uh, the prologue. We talked about the elders of Jabesh looking for someone to save them. The Spirit of God or the Spirit of Lord constantly rushes upon or empowers judges through the book of Judges to do these actions that constantly save Israel. It's starting to sound like the book of Judges, I think, on purpose because the author here, the Holy Spirit here, wants us to see that God is still delivering His people even though the institution that his rebellious people wanted happened, right? Do you hear that? God didn't want this. He loves his people. First Samuel 8, 7 says he's rejected by his people by their very want of a king. And I've been hammering on this point often, it seems, so I'll make it quick, though. But he's, he's conceding. And he's working with their desire, though this doesn't excuse the fact that he's been rejected by them. He's constantly delivered people through judges, but we see now that even with Saul, God has given Saul a new heart. We saw that last week. He's come upon him already. Last week we read also, and he's coming upon him now to continue to save his people. Because though his people rebel against him, God fiercely loves his people. He fiercely protects his people. He fights for his people, and he's empowering Saul here. So look at the first thing that Saul does. I think it's very sneaky. It's very clever. Now remember where Saul heard this. He's out plowing his fields. He's a good farmer. He's behind oxen and he hears wailing. He's told about the happenings in Jabesh and we're told that the Spirit of God rushes upon him and his anger is kindled. So the poor oxen that he's working with that day, he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messenger, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. I wonder, if you remember a few weeks ago, whenever we met Saul, he has this talk with Samuel. And Samuel's going in the direction of telling him he's the one to be king in Israel, but then Saul mentions he's from Benjamin. He's from the least tribe of Israel. Why did he say that? Because Benjamin was the center of a controversial civil war. Judges 19 through 21 tells us the story that a corrupt Levite shows up at Saul's hometown of Gibeah, where he's at right now in his text. And a scene from Sodom and Gomorrah seems to take place. A bunch of people gather around the house where this Levite is staying and the men demand to have their way with this Levite. And the Levite decides to give him his concubine because he's such a fine, upstanding Levite. And uh, he gives him his concubine and says, here, take her instead. (laughs) So they basically kill the Levite. Some of you are like, this is in the Bible? You sure it's not on TV? The Levite (laughs) quarters her up like Saul did with the oxen. He quarters the concubine up. And he sends the quartered concubine to all Israel and he basically says the same thing. Only it's Benjamin, the Levite, is enraged against. It's the tribe of Benjamin. 
Benjamin did this to my concubine. Are we going to let this stand? So it could be that Saul is slightly playing politics here. I I don't know. Benjamin might have a sour name, and it could be that Saul is, is saying a few things here. First, he's intentionally quartering up to remind folks what started the civil war in Benjamin. Secondly, since he's a Benjaminite, he could be saying this, I'm enraged. I know I'm a Benjaminite, but my rage has to be shared by all of you against our common enemy, Nahash, who seeks to threaten Israel. So Saul could sneakily, this is just my own thinking, you can take it with a grain of salt, but Saul could sneakily be trying to appease any lingering distaste with Benjamin by being a Benjaminite calling Israel to a common enemy of all Israel. Does that make sense? It gets more political. Notice this choice of words here. Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel. Saul throws in Samuel's name there. He's trying to let Israel know that he supports the previous leadership figure, that God's got his stamp of approval on the actions here. Does that that make sense? Don't hear me wrong. By, By virtue of my calling this political maneuvering, I'm not saying that there's any lack of sincerity here. We know the Spirit of God has given Saul this rage. He means war. When he, that is Saul, mustered them at Bezek. So Jabesh Gilead is east of the Jordan River. If you go west about 12 miles of the Jordan River, you find Bezek. That's a good place to get your troops together. So that's where he's gathering at. The people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. So here we see Israel and Judah, northern kingdom and southern kingdom, already separated. Um, some wonder if First Samuel was written later in history, maybe when they're all deported. Uh, I kind of made a case at the beginning that Samuel could be the major author. It could be that uh, much how we consider New England and the Great Plains and the Pacific Northwest, that there are regions in Israel. So maybe these were just well-known regions. Israel had 300,000 men. Judah had 30,000 men. It makes sense as Israel has more land than Judah. Verse 9, And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow by this time the sun is hot, that means at noontime, you shall have salvation. Again, the same word for deliverance in the book of Judges. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Jabesh's plea to Nahash has paid off here. <laughs> the, the Their king Saul is being put to the test. He's showed his rallying techniques. The people are gathered. Let's see if this is a king like all the nations who will fight their war for them. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said, and this is obviously implied to King Nahash, the Ammonites here, that's who they're talking to, tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. The ESV is taking some liberties here in the translation. The actual language is more vague. Tomorrow, we will come out to you. (laughs) Which leaves it a little bit purposefully vague. We're going to come out tomorrow. But as for surrender or for attack, they're not saying what. (laughs) And furthermore, you may do to us whatever seems good to you, right? You know, maybe they're saying, if you want to gouge out our right eyes, that's fine. Or if you think it's a good idea to retaliate when we try to beat you, that's fine too. You know, there's, <laughs> what is said can be taken many ways. And the next day, Saul put the people in three companies, three separate groups. Gideon did this, another nod to the judges. 
And they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch. That's between 2 and 6 a.m., which some of you have told me you were up in the morning watch last night. So was I. So was Landon. (laughs) So it's still dark, and no one is expecting an attack. The messengers uh, also failed to mention what exact time they were coming. (laughs) Oops. (laughs) And they uh, struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day, so they won by the afternoon. Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. So let's not skip over this monumentous event. This is Nahash of the Amorites. This is like Seattle was wiped out and soon western Washington with it. And then they took out Spokane and now he's at Lewiston. And for Israel, cities and tribal lands were were dropping. And Nahash arriving at at Jabesh. Jabesh made a a last-minute ditch effort, scrambling to Israel to the king. The king who was supposed to save them. The king who didn't have everyone's supports being put to the test to do what the people wanted to do. And then the Spirit of God rushed upon him to make sure that that's what he would do. (laughs) He was angered. He made the call. He brought Israel together. He reflected all the makings of a judge throughout the whole task. Now this is a judge who is a king. And this is a judge who doesn't let what he's done go to his head. Very interesting. You know, I was saying last week that it seems to me that Saul, in this season, between seemingly unfamiliar to God in his ways, whenever he first heard about Samuel, who's Samuel, and then on the other side, he's an evil man bent on murdering David, he's in this season where he might be among the righteous. He prophesies and he shows mercy. We read about those worthless fellows who doubted Saul last week, and we see some other folks who want to call those guys out. It says, then the people said to Samuel, interesting that they're saying this to Samuel, Maybe they saw that Saul showed mercy. Well, let's see what Samuel says about these people who don't like Saul. Who is it that said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But then Saul said, kind of showing his authority that's arising, he answers for Samuel, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Showing mercy again, crediting God alone for salvation, the deliverance that Israel just experienced. Now, this is not the Saul we come to know in the coming chapters. And then this third ceremony happens. I reminded us to begin with that we've had a banquet with Samuel at a place of worship. Then we had a coronation ceremony at Mizpah in the last chapter. We talked about last week, and now we have this in Gilgal. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. To me, this is what seems to be going on. Samuel might be responding to the fact that not everybody claimed Saul as their king. Samuel is is saying, let's go to Gilgal, which is a more sacred, a more religious, if you want to use that term, religious center. center. The coronation at Mizpah felt more secular. Here in Gilgal, they will be, quote, before the Lord and make offerings. The hope is, is let's unite under Saul. Let's thank God and affirm to God his selection of Saul. Let's let there not be any question anymore. God has proven that Saul is the king And this is also the underlying theme, too, that God is certainly in the midst here. 
peace offerings, offerings of thankfulness. And so we see the people seem to be okay with, with more God than they at first wanted. The language is unmistakable in 1 Samuel 8 when they were asking for a king. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. There shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. See, these are words that needed emphasizing because God wanted a holy and peculiar nation. He wanted a nation not like all the nations. He wanted a nation that was led solely by himself. And what we see here in 1 Samuel 10, if I could put it this way, seems to be a compromise in some ways. Because here's what I've been saying these last several weeks. God is rejected. He did not ordain what Israel is doing. He does not want Israel to have a king like all the nations, but he's conceding. And I said this last week that he's conceding graciously. He's appointed the king that they want. He's entered into the king that they want through his spirit. He's changed that king's heart. Today we see that he's empowered that king that they want to be victorious at doing what they wanted. Namely, to save them from their enemies, exactly like the time of Judges he saved Israel. And so now we see the people respond this way. They celebrate Saul's crowning before the Lord. They give peace offerings to the Lord. Saul credits the Lord for their victory. Saul shows continual mercy in the face of enemies. Friends, that is a king that may have fought Israel's war, but it is still a king in a kingdom that has a decided difference from the rest of the nations, does it not? When they win wars, they show mercy to doubters. When they're victorious over invaders, they praise God for it. When they crown kings, they do it in worship services. Here's what I'm saying. God was rejected here and He conceded and He showed extreme compassion. He showed extreme graciousness. He said, have it your way and I will help you so that your way is divinely blessed with my resources. And now I see some repentance happening in Israel. The people don't run off with Saul and say, Yahoo, no more Yahweh. We have Saul. But even the king that they wanted is saying, let's praise Yahweh for what he's done. Does that make sense? God's kindness is leading them to repentance. We have a king whose kindness who leads us to repentance. And so here's my question. Where is God's kindness in your life? In my life? How many of us are upset over politicians and politics and coronavirus and the media and why does that person hate us and why do I never have enough money and what's with all the medical issues that I'm facing and I'm sure wish some things would get straightened up in my little kingdom and I need a better leader of my kingdom. I think I'll lead my kingdom. And meanwhile, I wonder if God is saying, here's a good house to live in. Here's a good family in Christ. Sorry your real family deserted you. Here's a good community to live in. I'm sorry you have this illness, but I'll mold you with it to be a better person. Graciously note that you don't have the illness or disability that that person has. Sorry you're upset with the politicians. I'll send you to North Korea as a (laughs) missionary if you would like. And God is giving me, I'll own it, He's giving me kindness after kindness after kindness and I'm giving judgment after judgment and I'm consuming His kindness and all of His kindness that I'm not entitled to. I'm not worthy of it. But I still get it. And there's a reason for it. And the Israelites picked up on it. Even the king, like the rest of the world, picked up on it. Repentance. Friends, I'm so thankful that God is somehow 
some way, despite all I do, blessing me, still working with me. Help me, God, to be repentant and to respond obediently. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... uh, We wouldn't raise or manage kids or manage nations like you. You have a nation who spat in your face and said, we don't want you as king. We want somebody who's like the rest of the world, a good, strong king. And while our resolve might quicken and our anger might rise and our willingness to hand out spankings and to restrain them and force them to do what they would do, you conceded. You said, have it your way. And in fact, more than that, you were graciously abundant. And you said, here's the king that you want. I'll do all I can to make him the best leader. And Father, right now where we're at in the story, he is a good leader. He's saved the nation like many judges have before. He's leading the nation in a service of of worshiping you and thanking you for what you've done. Because Father, we know that whenever you decided to be kind and show compassion and be gracious to your kingdom, it was meant to lead them to repentance. Father, what kindnesses are you giving us? Why are you showing us so much grace? And Father, what sins do we need to repent of? Help us to respond to your kindness in the way that you want us to respond, and that is to repent of sin, to trust you more, to give you our kingdom and to make you king again, instead of trying to be lord and king over our own kingdom, fooling ourselves to be thinking we're still among the righteous. Help us, Lord Jesus, to live into the spirit that you give us. Help us, Lord Jesus, to to know the seriousness of the sacrifice that you've made for us. Help us to rely each and every time we're convicted of sin upon the grace you give us through Jesus and his spilled blood. And help us, Lord Jesus, to continue to make you Lord and King over our lives. We ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.